0: Okay, well, welcome, everybody, to Cato Institute, our policy center here. Um, we have Pierre Deroscher. Uh, baseball fans will recognize that he is related to the late Leo De Rocher, known as Leo the Lip, who managed the Chicago Cubs into oblivion. Uh, <clears throat> he's written a fine book called The Locav- Locavore's Dilemma. And it's about, well, I, I saw some of you at Whole Foods a couple nights ago So you can be smug in this audience. Uh, Anyway, he has has looked at the economics of food geography and it's a fascinating book that he has written. Uh, Pierre is an associate professor of geography at the University of Toronto Mississauga. Mississauga, that's northwest of Toronto, right? Okay, Uh, he got his PhD from University of Montreal in geography and his undergraduate bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Montreal. He's also a fellow at the Mercatus Institute, and in fact, it was his work on the concept of food miles, which is how far your food travels and therefore how bad it is for the environment, that won him the fellowship at Mercatus. He's going to talk to us for about a half hour on his book, and then Gary Blumenthal, who's the president of World Perspectives Incorporated, is going to give us a critical commentary on the book, World Perspectives uh, is a consulting firm and uh, agricultural market firm. Uh, Gary also works on various industry groups and advisory groups, including the World Agricultural Forum and the USDA Foreign Agriculture Services Emerging Markets Advisory Committee. He was Deputy Assistant for Cabinet Affairs and Special Assistant for Agricultural Trade and Food Assistance for President George H.W. Bush. So, Pierre, it's all yours.
1: Well, thank you, Pat, and uh, thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting me. Uh, I need to make a correction before I begin, though. I am the co-author of the book. Uh, The other co-author happens to be my wife, uh, Iroko Shimizu, who is obviously Japanese by the name, and uh, she's the reason why I ended up writing about food. I mean, I grew up in a small town not too far from Montreal. I mean, my parents uh, had a sugar shack, which obviously means maple syrup in the Quebec context, an apple orchard. Uh, We always kept a few rabbits, but my brother and I would not eat them, so we would trade them with the neighbor's rabbit every year, so that we would eat their rabbits and they would eat our rabbits. (laughs) But, uh, like many country kids, I got out of there for high school. I went to study in Montreal at a better high school, or so my parents thought. And I was pretty sure I would never really get back discussing or being involved with agriculture at all. So I became an economic geographer that specializes in urban uh, growth and development, uh, transportation, energy policy. But then a few years ago, I made a mistake. Um, We had a prestigious speaker give a talk at my university, and I brought my wife along. And the talk was about the ecological footprint. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, but basically whenever you hear around Earth Day every year that if everybody was living at the level of a North American, we would need three more planets to sustain uh, our society as we know it. And so we had an ecological footprint guy come in and give a talk, and at some point he linked the ecological footprint and local food, and he basically described people who live beyond their local food shed as parasites. And it so happens that he stated quite clearly with some numbers and a cute little map that by far the most parasitical people on earth are the Japanese because they depend on their food, on food imports for up for you know, between 60 and 70% of their calories. So at one point, Hiroko was about that big, is sitting next to me, and is sort of becoming restless and wants to raise her hand. And I'm like, no, 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 don't embarrass me in front of my colleagues. But that <laughs> evening, she made me promise to do something about it. So that was in 2007. And so it so happened that I knew people at the Mercatus Center. They were interested in having me write another paper, which I did. But I said, oh, by the way, would you mind considering a proposal on this whole food miles thing? You know, my wife will kill me if I don't do something about this. And so we did, and it turned out to be by far the most successful thing I ever wrote in terms of public impact. And so I became the kind of bait noir of local food activists in Canada. So when they I'm debating one of those local food activists on the CBC CBC radio, and the literary agent heard me, thought that I had something interesting to say, and so uh, hence the book today, again, co-written with my wife. I did not do it alone. Iroko is an economist by training, so she slugged through all the economics and engineering studies. So, uh, What I want to give you is a broad broad outline of our main arguments. I will not cover everything that uh, we discuss in the book, But I just want to say a few words about this whole uh, local food movement to begin with. I mean, the crowd seems pretty young, as most of you are familiar with it. And then I want to say basically why uh, the main claims put forward by food activists do not live up to, uh, well, simple truth and advertising, really. And then a few concluding thoughts. So herbivores eat plants, carnivores eat meat, locavores eat local. But, of course, all of us eat local food when it makes sense. So, you know, when food is in season and you get a good quality price ratio for it, you don't need a local food movement to push local food. People have been eating local food forever, and we still eat it today when, again, uh, retailers, wholesalers find the best quality food at a given time of the year being produced not too far from where you live. I mean, after all, good food has to be produced somewhere. And so people have been consuming local food forever, and we still do it when it is the best Uh, thing available. So obviously, to make sense, a local food movement must go beyond local food as a reasonable alternative. And what I mean by that is that people will deliberately promote local food when it has no other advantages than being local. So this implies in practice that you will produce more local food when when it makes no economic sense to do so in an attempt to reduce your dependence on other Uh, locations. But in the last few years, this whole local food movement has become something more. In a way, it's almost a rebellion against globalization, against big agribusiness, against the way food is produced. And I don't know if people on the webcast will see this, but I have a slide here that says, in our society, and you've got a little shovel here up, growing food yourself has become the most radical of acts. It is truly the only effective protest, one that can and will overturn the corporate powers that be. By the process of directly working in harmony with nature, we do the one thing most essential to change the world, we change ourselves. And so in a way, if you go to a farmer's market today, it's no longer just about uh, local fresh food, when I, like when I was a kid, but rather about, um, I would say, eye-hand environmental temples where you try to stick it to the man, or at least to the big ag man, by buying locally produced food. But of course, this then begs the question, I mean, people used to consume mostly local food throughout history. And so isn't this movement simply amounting to saying, well, you know, backward is the new forward. So this is an illustration of a public market in England about a century ago where you can see a lot of people buying uh, their food at stalls. I mean, obviously some of that food will have been imported, but a lot of it was still local uh, at that point in time. So then it's obviously raised the first basic question that we we ask in the book. Well, if things were so great when food, even in big cities, was mostly local, why did people bother developing the globalized food supply chain in the first place? And so we spend a portion of the book explaining how prevalent local food production was even not too long ago in large cities. So I have a few illustrations here. So uh, backyard chickens, pigs, goats, we have a quote from Friedrich Engels, Marx's co-author of the Communist Manifesto, who complains about Irish workers in Manchester in the early 19th century. Why is that? Well, because essentially the Irish workers brought their pigs with them. And Engels is complaining that Manchester is being overrun by pigs. You know, we find them in the backyards, in the front yards, in the basement, even sometimes in the rooms living with Irish workers. And Engels really doesn't like that. But he points out to the fact that until fairly recently, a lot of food was still produced locally in large cities. This is a picture of Parisian truck farmers taken in the second half of the 19th century. So as late as perhaps the 1880s, roughly one-sixth of, Paris, of the Paris greater metropolitan area is still devoted to food production. But people there are already defying seasonality, and they've been defying it for a very long time. So this is how people used to grow food local food up until uh, the end of the 19th century. So what you have here, whoops in the back is a wind-breaking wall. Okay, okay. I won't touch it anymore. Uh, is a wind-breaking wall. All gardens in Paris have wind-breaking walls around them to try to create a local microclimate. Those glass structures are called cloches. Today they're mostly made out of plastic. And they're growing stuff in there, which is basically soaking in horse manure. So this is before the car comes along. And so there's plenty of horse manure available. So these producers truck their vegetables to Paris, sell them, bring back horse manure. They're located in the suburbs. And this, along with other technologies that they use in those days, like very dark straw mats that they put on top, allow them to produce green asparagus year-round. And what's interesting, when you read the original sources, I mean, I'm French-Canadian, I can read that stuff, is that they say that they really gained respect from other Parisians in the 1820s when they were able to grow green asparagus year-round, when they defeated seasonality. Now, paradoxically, today, a lot of local food activists tell you that we should rediscover the seasons. But in the apex of local food, which was the second half of the 19th century, people were doing their darndest to defeat seasonality. And you know if people in London were willing to pay more for that food, they were shipping it to London. But the point is that, again, until the late 19th century, a lot of food is still produced locally in uh, the largest cities of the world, of the advanced world. Okay, the other question that we ask in the book is well, why is it that lo- uh, local food movements don't ever last? So we document how local food uh, movements are probably as old as long distance transportation, but especially with the advent of the railroad, the steamship, and the steamboats you've had various attempts historically to try to protect inefficient local producers who were now forced to compete with people in other locations whose food could now be tracked much more efficiently to large cities. So this is a poster from the USDA that's almost a century old. This was produced in the First World War, so the United States enters the war after most other countries in 1917. And there is a strong movement to have farmers specialize on crops that deliver a lot of calories like potatoes and cereals and to let people grow their own vegetables. So the poster says here, make backyards and vacant lot productive, work a garden, raise chickens, do your share, can your food, try to sustain yourself as much as you can. And you had several of these movements over the last century and a half. So this is a depression relief garden in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, in the first years of the Great Depression, you had an, an attempt to promote uh, local food systems throughout the United States to help cope with depression. With the Depression. But this was uh, the, la- the latest at the time in a long line that uh, went back really to the late 19th century. So there was something called the Urban Potato Patches Movement uh, in the Depression of the 1890s. And actually, the expression back to the land uh, does not go back to the hippies of the 1970s, but really back to the early 20th century, uh, when, uh, to the turn of the 20th century, where, uh, when wealthy landowners who had vacant lots in cities were strongly urged to let poor people grow their potatoes, at least on uh, these vacant lots. And then you had other movements like garden city plots, uh, school gardens, so Liberty Garden, you saw that during the First World War, relief gardens during the Depression, victory gardens during the Second World War, and community gardens, which have been around for decades. But again, these things don't last. Why is it? I mean, they, they come and go, but they never last. And of course, this movement was never limited to the United States, so this is part of a British campaign, In the 1920s to encourage uh, people to buy local food and in this case also they don't believe in seasonality you know we have many uh, glass houses in the united kingdom we grow 50 million we grew 50 million cucumbers in 1925 buy british keep your money in the uk but to be honest my favorite local food movement of all is also a uk invention uh, that came along in the 1920s but it was called the empire marketing board and in that case, local meant the whole of the British Empire. So buy from Canadians, Canadians will buy from you, buy from New Zealanders, buy from Australians. Every time you buy Empire Produce, you help the Empire to buy from us. So in this case, Ireland and uh, England are working together. Uh, I don't know how successfully, but uh, at least that's the idea. So uh, this, uh, I'll show you a few images from that marketing campaign. So buy Empire every day. You know, In 1882, uh, New Zealand sent its first uh, profitable shipment of frozen lamb to the UK. In 1929, they sent 207 million pounds of lamb to the UK. 1880, the first butter was delivered from Australia. Then in 1929, of course, they sent hundreds of millions of pounds of butters. 1907, first oranges from South Africa. 1929, a lot more of it. 1903, uh, green grapes from Australia, so sultanas and currants. 1873, the first tea from Ceylon, which would be Sri Lanka today, and 1876, the first salmon from Canada. Now, the interesting thing about the Empire Marketing Board is that it failed abysmally. And if the British Empire is not enough of a local economy to make such a movement sustainable, then what's the problem with it? Well, this is a fairly sophisticated audience, so I will go very quickly over this, but again, The points we make in the book is that uh, none of the promises made by local food activists ever uh, stand the test of time. Now, the first and most plausible argument that they make is that we don't know our farmers anymore, and wouldn't it be great if you knew the people who grew our food, if we could interact with them? Uh, Not just at farmers' market, but in buying directly from them. And so you've had this movement in the last few years, which is now called community-supported agriculture, in which you essentially purchase in advance and you typically pay in advance a local farmer to deliver you food without having any intermediary in between. So, in essence, what uh, community supported agriculture tends to do is to cut the intermediaries, which are typically described as parasites, and to go beyond the barcode and the brand bullies. But again, you've got to ask yourself well, why do we have brands in the first place? Why do we have supermarkets? Don't they contribute anything? And so we delve into some of the history behind the origins of brands in the book. But the one thing I want to insist on here is that if you go back before these things emerge, if you go back to a time where people bought their food at local food markets, or at least at local farmers markets were sold by individuals, people were complaining that they were being sold adulterated food all the time. So Friedrich Ackham was a German chemist who created a prosperous consulting business in early 19th century England by saying that he was able to detect the fraud that had been committed by local uh, retailers in terms of, you know, adding water to milk, uh, chicory to coffee, uh, rice powder to cream and stuff like that. And of course, Akum is promoting his business, but he's arguing that food adulteration is carried on to a most alarming extent in every part of the United Kingdom. You cannot trust local people. There will always be a few rotten apples among them. But of course, one of the ways in which markets uh, dealt with that is through the emergence of brands. I mean, one of the first food brands in the United States was Quaker Oats. Now, the founders were not Quakers, but uh, the Quakers were known to be reputable people that you could trust. And even if the image was not really grounded in reality, at least as far as Qu- the Quaker Oat brand was concerned, you knew that if you bought a, bo- a box of Quaker Oats products, you would get the same box all across the United States. And what we've seen happening in farmers' markets in recent years is that very often the only thing that is local about the food that they sell you is that it was bought at the local Costco. You have a lot of little fly-by-nights operations who are not worth suing. And if, I challenge you to Google farmers' market and fraud and see what comes up. And then you will see a number of journalistic reports where the you know journalist goes into the farmers' market talk to the local farmer who's there, ask him where his farm is located, how does he grow his stuff, then drive 50 miles to the farm and realize that the only things that actually grow in that field are weeds. And then they will track that little fly-by-night operator again to the local Costco and see that he sells regular Costco products as locally grown, organic, farm-fresh stuff. And of course, you're not going to poison your customers by buying (coughs) stuff at Costco, because our system delivers uh, pretty safe and healthy food. And of course, we don't argue that everybody is untrustworthy in local food markets, which we sincerely believe that most of them are. But the fact is that the incentive structure to cheat in local farmers' markets and the penalty associated with being caught is simply not comparable with those of large corporations that can be sued by the John Edwards of this world or other local celebrities here. We also document how cutting the intermediary actually does not reduce prices. Typically, the food that is bought through community-supported agriculture comes out in in the end turns out to be much more expensive, and that is because you have absolutely no flexibility. I mean, if your kids are gone for summer camp for two weeks, you're still having too much food being delivered to you. If you have extra guests, well, you need to go to uh, the local supermarket to buy more food. If you've got to go meet the farmer on his farm or at another inconvenient location, well, you not only spend more money, but you waste more time collecting your food. So in the end, what we argue is that there are many ways to build social capital in a local community, and having less money and time to do it does not help you being involved in little league soccer or things like that. So there are other ways to create local capital than simply patronizing farmers that way. I'm an economic geographer by training. I study city growth. Um, Essentially, what we argue in the book is that there has never been any significant economic development historically without the rise of cities. And you go back in time and already Plato, Socrates, and the other characters in the Republic when they discuss where should should we locate our ideal city, confess that there's no location in the world at the time where you can have a city without importing substantial amount of stuff, including food. So since the days of Plato, at least, and probably for millennia before that, you could not have urbanization without uh, long-distance trade. And you cannot have economic growth without urbanization. Cities simply make people uh, more productive. Uh, Another problem with local food is that, again, it tends to be more expensive. After all, uh, if you have to heat a greenhouse as opposed to importing food from a location where nature provides you with natural warmth, well, your food will be more expensive. And if you spend more on your food, well, you obviously have less money to spend on other things. And so the end result is that you destroy more jobs than you create. Then what about exporters in less developed economies? I mean, you want to help them move beyond subsistence farming. You want to help them get ahead in life. Uh, Shutting them the markets of of more advanced economies is not the way to help them. So again, we spend more time discussing the economics of urbanization in the book. Again, that's what I do for a living, so I did perhaps... Uh, I wouldn't spend too much time on that, but I spent enough to really make the point, I believe. Uh, we also discuss economies of scale and transformation, so the Chicago Meatpacking District. I just love this image here, so people don't realize today that... Uh, well, okay, I won't touch that anymore. That before uh, plastics came along, a lot of the stuff that people use in their daily lives, you know, comms, pipes, whatever, would be made out of animal bones. And what the Chicago uh, meatpacking district made possible was uh, to generate economies of scale and transformation that transform uh, wasted products into valuable byproducts. So a small butcher would waste a significant amount of weight of the animal, but because of economies of scale, the Chicago packers were able to create all sorts of uh, you know, productive and profitable byproducts and sell meat more cheaply in the process. So this is, again, a sophisticated audience. I won't go into that. But there are, again, reasons why we have uh, cities and large-scale operations. There are economies of scale in food production, as with any other line of work. And this is, unfortunately, something that local food activists don't grasp very well. Okay, but really the key argument, the one that has caught the attention of a lot of people in the last two decades, is this notion of food mile. So what are they, why should we care? So in essence, food mile is the distance that food travels from the producer to the retailer. And in the mind of local food activists, this is really an evil thing, because we move things around by burning fossil fuel, mostly, you emit carbon dioxide in the process, got something to my right here who could lecture you a lot more and was much more confident to address this issue than me. But the point that local food activists make is that, well, there's really no difference between, let's say, a local apple and an apple grown elsewhere. Although if you don't see that, I don't know if you see that in the back here. Uh, You've got a palm tree right next to an apple tree. I don't know which ecosystem that is. But what activists are telling you is that, well, you've got the local apple, which basically falls on your plate and that apple from this weird subtropical-ish type of location, which, you know, has needed all this infrastructure to deliver it to your plate. So essentially, to be valid, obviously, uh, food mile means that local production is essentially the same as foreign production minus transportation. So in other words, food miles are only valid when everything else is equal. But I'm a geographer, this is kind of obvious to me, but what I've realized over the year when I talk to economists is that their understanding of the world map is that it is ordered alphabetically. And what I mean by that is that they look at a column, they'll have you know, Albania, Angola, something, and that's how they think about geographies. You know, Countries are ordered um, alphabetically, and they don't really think about differences uh, in terms of soil, uh, weather, and other factors uh, in the real world. But these things obviously matter. So uh, these are not my numbers, but they've been validated by na- many people. Um, why is it that the New Zealanders are so much better than their UK uh, agricultural producers' counterpart? <clears throat> well, there are many reasons for that. Gary could expand on that later. But essentially, with the same amount of inputs, uh, New Zealanders produce three times more apple, uh, four times more lamb, and two times more milk solid. And so there are places in the world where both natural conditions and the nine dynam- uh, the innovative character of local producers will create huge discrepancies in terms of the amount of food that you can generate using a certain amount of inputs. And so things are not equal elsewhere. Then a mode of transportation matters a lot. So uh, this is a container ship, uh, probably the greenest innovation in humanity's history. When I mean, it floats on water, it has very large diesel engines. It burns bunker fuel, which is essentially the least valuable liquid fraction of petroleum and you can ship an apple from New Zealand to North America for about a cent. I mean the energy signature per apple moved uh, across the Pacific or at least a portion of the Pacific is really insignificant. By contrast what many life cycle analyses have shown is that putting a few bags of apple in the back of your pickup and driving a few miles will actually entail a much larger energy signature than having them shipped by boat uh, from New Zealand. So the mode of transportation does matter a lot more than food miles uh, per se and then latitude does matter so you know even if when you have similar conditions your location on earth will mean that you will have different uh, harvest periods and what happens in the southern hemisphere is that their summers are winter and vice versa so where i grew up uh, we would pick apples in september and you wanted to eat them in march or, or april well obviously you would need to leave them in cold storage for several months uh, you would lose uh, some of them to spoilage the taste would not be that great you bring them from the southern hemisphere In March or or April, they might have been picked three three weeks earlier rather than six months, Uh, much less uh, spoilage in the process, uh, much lower energy signature. And so latitude does matter a lot in terms of the environmental impact of agricultural production, which is, again, a notion that seems completely lost on food activists. Uh, Other back-of-the-envelope calculations, in the United States overall, about 4% the co2 equivalent which i will translate here as environmental impact of uh, food production can be traced back to long distance transportation and 83 percent to production so let's say manufacturing fertilizers uh, irrigating a field having your tractors uh, move in that type of stuff and so what happens when you cut down on the distance travel you typically increase the production side uh, in some way or another again if you want to Uh, produce food in a greenhouse locally, well, typically you will need something like more natural gas than would be the case if you had, let's say, an unheated greenhouse in a warmer location. So you cannot win by cutting down on transportation. You will increase the production side of things by a larger extent than what you will gain by reducing the distance through which foods are moved. Now, another pet peeve of local food activists is to say that, well, monocultures are bad, it's against nature, we need more biodiversity. And the case we make, among other things, is that monocultures are actually good for biodiversity because if you want to be good to nature, stay away from it. So by producing a lot more food in the best locations the world over, you can abandon a lot of marginal agricultural land. So you should take these maps here with a grain of salt, but essentially what they tell you is that Once all the natives had died and the the forest had regrown in North America in 1620, you had a lot of trees in the eastern U.S. Then settlers moved west, they deforest the area. Uh, The U.S. forest low point was reached around 1920, and since then, with the advent of fossil fuel and modern agribusiness, a lot of agricultural land was abandoned throughout the United States, and a lot of it has reverted to a wilder state. I mean, it's obviously not the same type of forest in many cases than in 1620, but again, if you care about... Uh, having less of a footprint on nature, high-yield agriculture is the way to go. Now, we discuss other arguments, but I think visually this is the most uh, powerful one. Myth number four, food security. So again, this argument of monoculture. Uh, what will happen if you get another Irish potato famine type of case? You know, What if you specialize in wheat and then you get a rust problem a year or something? aren't you better off having a lot of smaller things, like in the good old days of subsistence agriculture? The paradox is that typically local food activists worship diversity in all its form, except in terms of geographical locations. And essentially what they tell you is that you should put all your production eggs in one local basket. And historically, this was a recipe for disaster. It doesn't matter if you're based in South China or northern Europe in 1800, you will have bad years. You, you can have frost, a flood, uh, an earthquake, something that will affect a wide range of crops. And you get to uh, bad harvests in a row, and you typically have a famine or at least very severe malnutrition. And the historical record is clear on that. The only thing that really put an end to famine was not democracy, but long-distance trade. By being able to channel the surpluses of regions that had good years to those that had bad years, you were able, eventually, to spread the risk over a much larger geographical area, and this is how humanity historically defeated famine. If you want to revert back to putting all your eggs in one regional basket, you will be in trouble, just like our ancestors were. And I think the evidence on that, again, is pretty clear. Okay, myth number five, nutrition and food safety. So the idea of local food activists that fresher is tastier and more nutritious. We leave a number of complexities out of the book. So one told by nutritionists, for example, that a canned tomato is more nutritious for you because it was cooked as opposed to a fresh tomato. But assuming that the local activists are right, how can their proposition be true? I mean, in most temperate climates crops will only be available for a few weeks out of 52. And the rest of the year, if you want to have local strawberries, well, you either turn them into jam, or you freeze them, or you do something. As opposed to having good local strawberries in season, if they make sense, and fairly good strawberries imported from further away uh, during the rest of the year. So you can't have it both ways. Is fresher is really the key to taste and nutrition, Reverting to local food gives you you the exact same thing that you would get in our current system for a few weeks out of the year, depending on what crop or berries or whatever you're producing locally. But it can't be as good the rest of the year, because again, you've got to preserve this stuff one way or another. Uh, USDA food pyramid, I don't know if you see that in the back. Can we trust food that is sent to us from China and other locations of ill repute? I don't know if I should say that for the record here. I'm not sure my wife and I quite agree on this issue. My wife being Japanese and being raised, having been raised in a certain way. But obviously the point we make in the book is that what matters is not where the food is produced, but how it is produced. And you've had a lot of foreign investments in less advanced economies, and you have a lot of monitoring along the food supply chain that actually ensures that Overall, the food that comes from less advanced economies is actually of fairly high quality. I mean, it's in nobody's interest to poison their customers. The real safety issues, of course, are not the pesticides and the things that typically worry consumers, but things like Salmonella, E. coli and Listeriosis. And what we argue in the book is that there are significant economies of scale in that respect. A lot of local farmers will not be able to monitor these problems whereas large uh, wholesalers and producers actually have the know-how. So our system is not perfect, but it is much better than it used to be. And again, you cannot deny that there are significant economies of scale of food safety. By wanting to revert back to smaller producers, you will make more people sick, and more people will die of things like food poisoning. So in conclusion, locavorism delivers higher costs and greater poverty, no environmental and social benefits, provides less food security and nutrition, and is a significant penalty to developing economies. The problem we have today is not that we have too much globalization, but not enough of it. We still need to scrap things like the US farm bills and you know, water subsidies and ethanol mandates and things like that. And once this is done, people will look at the earth as one big garden rather than a sphere divided by artificial political barriers. And natural, naturally then food production will migrate in the most uh, sensible areas to grow a specific types of crops. And we will be able to deliver more food for less money and provide people with a uh, more diversified and abundant diet. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Uh, I should say that I, you never talked about the wonders of the family farm, which no. is part no. of the no. locavore yes. thing. I grew up on one of those. And I will tell you the truth. When I was a freshman in high school, I counted the number of days until I could go to college. <laughs> I'm not making that up. Um, Gary Blumenthal is going to offer us a few minutes of commentary, and then we're going to have questions uh, and answers. And please wait to be called upon uh, in the Q&A. We will hand you a microphone because we like to have your comments online for to enlighten all of us. So, Gary. Well,
2: Thank you, Pierre and Hiroko. Fantastic book. Uh, if I'm jealous. I wish I'd written it, but that makes me very pleased to uh, comment, uh, comment on it here today. Uh, for those of us that are practitioners of comparative advantage, the local war concept is greatly frustrating. And I think you uh, bring arguments of great depth and breadth that uh, uh, help uh, reveal its flaws. So uh, it's very helpful. Uh, I don't know if anybody caught it, but the Wall Street Journal uh, summarized Pierre's book uh, this past weekend, and uh, what they said was that he he appears to have fun uh, being a gleeful debunker. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know, uh, actually you would have fun every day here in Washington. Uh, It's like shooting fish in the barrel. Uh, uh, Before we came in, Pierre said, okay, now, uh, Gary, you're going to help me to look reasonable, right? And I said, I thought that's why you Canadians keep us Americans around. So of course, Uh, as I look at foodies, this this local, organic, small uh, uh, argument, um, I, I guess what I equate it to is fundamental Islam. You know, there's this this rejection of modernity, biotechnology, pesticides, fertilizers, all bad. Uh, There's the the goal to take us back, I think, is the pictures that uh, Pierre showed uh, centuries ago when life was simpler and uh, supposedly better, even though uh, we obviously know better. Uh, And this is all framed in in the context of social progressivity. Uh, And actually, I I, I don't see it that way at all. It's actually quite reactionary. Uh, You know, if we we look at the... uh, uh, Obamacare supporters, since that's a big issue here this week in Washington, uh, they all scoffed when uh, the argument was made, well, what's next, mandating that we eat broccoli? Well, of course, recently we've seen New York suggest mandating 16-ounce soft drinks. Uh, we have priority grants saying that local food will be bought for uh, food aid programs. Uh, I, I don't think it was that far in contact, uh, out of uh, possibility. Uh, One of my uh, favorites for sort of viewing this in context is a book by Andrew Potter called The Authenticity Hoax. And uh, what Potter uh, suggests is that there are certain people, generally wealthy, educated people, who uh, feel the need to show their superiority. And so they will drive their Prius to their Whole Foods market to show how how much smarter they are than the rest. Um, He he suggests that what they're in search of are positional goods. Uh, and I suppose since this is a younger crowd, we can say uh, you could equate it to hipsters, right? I mean, hipsters are into something until it becomes of general uh, uh, popularity, and then they move on to something else. It has to be unique is the way they look at it. Well, uh, Pierre is a polite Canadian, so he didn't get into U.S. politics, but I thought I would touch on it because I think it's, it's very relevant to, to the whole uh, thing. Back in 2008... Uh, the populist agriculture community that was very pleased when the Obama campaign basically said that they were going to level the playing field between agribusiness and small farmers. And I couldn't quite figure out what they meant by level the playing field. I kind of equated it. If you if you look at uh, the game of football, we have uh, a player called Trendon Holiday with the Texans. He's five foot five and 165 pounds. And then we have a player, Langston Walker, who was with the Raiders. 6 foot 8, 366 pounds. So Walker is 25% taller and 125% heavier, yet they both play on the same field in the same game, obviously delivering different goods to the game. And they're compensated according to the value that they deliver. One player, the smaller player, doesn't require a subsidy in order to compete on the field uh, with the larger player. And agriculture is much the same, and yet we have uh, the US government really trying to subsidize, whether it's know your farmer, know your food, or uh, my favorite is there was a $230,000 grant uh, to study if New England could become self-sufficient in food. Um, it really gets quite, quite silly. Uh, essentially, in Washington, banks can be too big to fail, but farms can be too big to succeed. Uh, it really is an awkward thing. Uh, and I like to ask the question, is it just coincidence that a country – like Greece, has the highest percentage of population in farming in Europe, or that Greece, Portugal, and Italy have the smallest average farms in Europe. Uh, As I think Pierre pointed out, you know, there is a relationship here. Uh, We have a a farm bill that's moving, and it's a very uh, current topic, and I thought I would mention a couple things in it. Uh, The Senate added $115 million to help farmers certify organic. This is a $31 billion industry that grew by 50% since 2008. Uh, You know, it it doesn't really need a subsidy. Uh, But uh, the other part that I think you'll find uh, hopefully as humorous as I do, the Farm Bill is really about picking winners and losers. That's what it's about. And uh, Senator Jim DeMint, he had to have had a great sense of humor. He got the Senate to pass a, a sense of the Senate resolution that nothing in this act shall manipulate prices or interfere with the free market. Um, we, uh, we do have this big problem, uh, and I think my challenge to you, Pierre, I think you, you've hit this one out of the park, but I think there are other books that you can write. Uh, because we have a lot of issues that are basically driven by emotion and not science or economics, and you hit on a few of them, but I just wanted to mention a, a little bit about them. Uh, organic. The Organic Trade Association announced two months ago very proudly that organic agriculture produces thousands of more jobs than if the same food were produced conventionally. So it's sort of the Martin Feldstein conundrum of, is it a jobs program or is it about productivity? Uh, Food safety, you mentioned, you covered that very well uh, about the myths. Uh, We have this problem where people who should and know a lot about food, but don't really. uh, The celebrity chef Rachel Ray was on The View a couple weeks ago, and she was asked, Well, uh, if hamburger is pink inside, is it safe to eat? And she said, well, if it comes from a grass-fed or an organic cow. And of course, it doesn't matter whether the cow is grass-fed or organic or if it ate Krispy Kreme donuts all day long. It's not going to change the safety of that hamburger that's cooked. And pink is not even a good color to judge the safety. It's 160 degrees. That's the science. It has to be 160 degrees or better. So here we have very, you know, uh, very impactful people in our society that uh, are misleading the public. The next one is animal welfare. Talk about an issue driven on emotion. Uh, we're now forcing the industry basically to get rid of gestation uh, stalls and battery cages and without any science. My favorite is a study out of Belgium in which they, uh, they one of the most tedious jobs is basically uh, catching the chickens. And so uh, they ask people, well, is it better to the machine catch the chicken or humans? And if you were urban, sorry to say female, Concerned about animal welfare, you are more likely to say, oh, humans should pick up the chickens. But of course, the science is completely the opposite. The chickens showed much less stress under the machine because humans were viewed as a predator, which we are. Machines are inanimate objects. Uh, more recently, uh, we've had a ban on horse slaughter, and that uh, we, uh, we have all kinds of uh, ill uh, coming out of that. But the media is the other. You know, we have uh, essentially a media that uh, presents studies that haven't been peer-reviewed or simply association studies, and uh, they come out on food every day, and we we battle this. One this week was by ABC7, uh, speculation that people who get – don't have as many allergies in rural areas because they get their food locally. Well, you know, rural people get their food globally just like uh, urban people. Uh, The – Opportunity here, I think, is to uh, write more, Pierre. Uh, You contended to educate, but I'll end with sort of a story about a little bit of caution here. Uh, Does anybody here live in Fairfax County? Okay, Fairfax County. You're you're very fortunate, or maybe you're not. Uh, What is it, Uh, number two county in the country in terms of undergraduate degrees, number three in terms of uh, advanced degrees, number three in terms of median income? Uh, have you ever heard the Real Food for Kids campaign? Uh, at this juncture, 32 school PTAs in Fairfax County have signed on to this, including Thomas Jefferson High School, considered the number one high school in the country. Uh, the head of this campaign was asked, well, uh, what do you think about disodium isonate? Iosinate, And he said, if I can't pronou- pronounce it, I don't want it in my food. Well, iosinate is basically nothing but... Uh, fermented vegetable starch. It was invented by the Japanese thousands of years ago. It's actually an expensive food ingredient because what it brings to food is the umami taste, which is a very treasured taste. Uh, and they have other things they want to get rid of, and the usual suspects, MSG, high fructose corn syrup, uh, and um, uh, hydrolyzed protein. That's kind of a funny one because the body naturally hydrolyzes protein. Uh, autolyzed yeast. Anybody want to take a guess what autolyzed yeast is? Actually, I've got a gift here. If anybody can guess what autolyzed yeast is. Think about it. Does anybody? I'll even give you a hint. I've got a gift here. Uh, It's from down under. Vegemite, you win. You can collect this after. Um, uh, They want organic milk uh, served. I was waiting for them to sort of jump the the whole way and say we want unpasteurized milk served. (laughs) Uh, I will leave you with this, Pierre. I've done two surveys now of industry in the past couple of months as I've gone to meetings. And I asked, well, what should we do about this? You know, all this skewing of what the food supply is about. And um, I said, you know, should we fight it? Should we capitalize on it? Well, of course, industry is fairly smart. So I had a fairly significant bunch that said, well, we should both fight it and capitalize on it, Uh, and I suspect what they're doing. But again, I want to thank you and Hiroko uh, for making a very important and valuable contribution to trying to edify the public about our food supply. Thank you.